I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we explore the legal and constitutional debates about policy responses to last week's mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were quick to respond to the incident. Uh, Secretary Clinton reaffirmed her desire for a national ban on assault weapons, while Donald Trump again called for a temporary ban on Muslim immigration to the United States. Both candidates have expressed support for a so-called no-buy list, uh, by which suspected terrorists would be prohibited from buying a gun, although the details of the proposals vary. Joining me to explore how the Constitution may apply to these fascinating questions are two of the nation's leading constitutional experts, returning champions, and great friends of We the People. Adam Winkler is professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, where he specializes in constitutional law. Adam worked with Nelson Lund of George Mason University School of Law to write about the Second Amendment for the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution, available at constitutioncenter.org. And Ilya Shapiro is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Ilya is also a member of the NCC's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, which oversees the interactive constitution. Adam, Ilya, great to have you back. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Good to be back. Wonderful. Well, let's jump right in. Just this morning, the Supreme Court refused to review a federal appellate decision upholding a ban on so-called assault weapons. Adam, what was the reasoning that the lower court used to uphold the ban on assault weapons? And do you think it was correct or not? Well, this is one of a number of cases that have come up through the federal court system dealing with these bans on assault weapons, uh, use some kind of military-style firearm that has some number of military-style characteristics, uh, and restrictions on high-capacity magazines, uh, magazines that hold uh, more than 10 rounds of ammunition. And the lower courts, uh, at least at the Court of Appeals level, have tended to uphold these laws. They've generally said that while assault weapons and high-capacity magazines are likely arms protected by the Second Amendment because they are in common use, there are millions of them out there, uh, generally the courts have found that restricting access to these weapons uh, is really very little burden on uh, gun owners. One of the stories with assault weapons is they're very easy to have substitutes, which is the reason why I don't favor a ban. I think policy-wise they don't really move the ball forward because there's such easy substitutes for a military-style rifle. Um, but in some strange way, the very fact that a ban like this is mostly ineffective has um, supported the lower courts when they've said that this is not much of a burden on gun owners to not have access to this weapon. Interesting. Uh, Ilya, uh, Nelson Lund, in his response to Adam Winkler on the Interactive Constitution's Second Amendment explainer, disagreed. He said... Uh, Popular bans on so-called assault rifles, for example, define this class of guns in terms of cosmetic features, leaving functionally identical semi-automatic rifles to circulate freely. This is unconstitutional for the same reason that it would violate the First Amendment to ban words that have a French etymology or to require that French fries be called freedom fries. So in other words, Professor Lund is saying that the cosmetic or aesthetic nature of the assault weapons ban and the fact that they're a substitute is an argument against its constitutionality, not in favor. Do you agree or not? Well, I don't always agree with Nelson Lund, but on that, I do agree both in substance and in the stylish way that he uh, explained that. I mean, really, 
We need to be clear about what a so-called assault weapon is. It's not a military-grade automatic uh, machine gun, Uzi, whatever you, you know, what, what Rambo fires uh, uh, in the movies. Um, those have been banned from private consumption since the 30s. Uh, that's not what this is. This is an ordinary rifle, call it a hunting rifle, just call it a, just a standard rifle, that indeed has certain cosmetic features. It's painted black. It has a certain kind of stock. It might have a sight. Uh, the, 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 the clip attachment works in a, in a certain way. None of these things affect the velocity or number of bullets uh, that come out, rate of fire, any of these sorts of things that in any way make the gun more uh, dangerous. Uh, what it does effectively is that it, uh, an assault weapon, it defines an assault weapon as something that Dianne Feinstein, the longtime powerful uh, member of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, finds scary. Uh, and as Adam uh, put it just now, I don't know if this counts as a gaffe, but he said that uh, these bans uh, don't really do anything because there's such, such easy substitutes to find. Uh, and so indeed, what possible reason, what justification could the government have in having these sorts of cosmetic bans when you can have other types of rifles that just look differently and are, are so-called uh, less scary? That seems to me like an unreasonable burden in and of itself in that the government uh, simply can't justify what is the justification uh, for uh, having these sorts of restrictions. But um, uh, the Supreme Court has been wary and indeed has not taken a, a single Second Amendment case since District of Columbia versus Heller. Uh, the McDonald case two years after that simply expanded the Heller to the states. But in terms of the scope of the right to keep and bear arms, they have turned down every single possible well-presented case to them, and that was with Justice Scalia on the bench. Now with the eight justice court, they're certainly not going to be taking these types of cases. Okay, very interesting. I don't know if this is fighting words, but is it a gaffe? The definition of the Kinsley gaffe in Washington is when a politician tells the truth by accident. Um, Adam, uh, I, I suspect it wasn't a gaffe, but I'd like in responding to you, uh, uh, tell us, what, 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 do, what is the doctrinal framework for evaluating whether or not this so-called cosmetic or aesthetic ban is constitutional. The Heller decision didn't give much guidance about what kind of reasonable restrictions are constitutional. So respond to Ilya and then take us through why you believe that the Second Amendment, properly construed, should allow the ban on assault weapons. Well, I should say that it's uh, not a gaffe. I've been an opponent of bans on assault weapons for some time. Uh, I just don't think that they're very good public policy. Um, I think if I were on the Supreme Court, I might even vote to strike down such a ban as unconstitutional. Uh, but what we have seen is that the lower courts have tended to uphold these sorts of laws. And the doctrinal framework really is the doctrinal framework that has developed at the circuit court level in the absence of Supreme Court guidance. The Heller and McDonald's case and McDonald case just didn't provide enough evidence for, uh, for the lower court, enough guidance, if you will, about exactly what kind of standard they should apply to future gun cases. What they have said, what the court did say, is that guns that are in common use and that are not dangerous and unusual weapons are protected by the Second Amendment. And that's led the lower courts generally to say that assault weapons and high-capacity magazines are protected by the Second Amendment in the sense that they are weapons that are in common use uh, for lawful purposes. Um, uh, and there are millions of these uh, items and firearms out there. Um, what they've generally then said, well, if it's protected by the Second Amendment, we should go on to apply some kind of standard of review. Generally, they apply an intermediate level of scrutiny, and they say that the government interest in restricting access to these weapons is an important governmental interest um, uh, in 
that uh, uh, the courts generally think that these, uh, or are willing to accept the government's argument that these firearms tend to be more deadly, especially in mass shooting circumstances. And then when it comes to narrow tailoring, or the kind of tailoring required under intermediate scrutiny, which is uh, much looser than, in, than uh, narrow tailoring under strict scrutiny, uh, the courts have generally said that these laws, even though they're not uh, expected to be terribly effective, do move the ball a little bit in terms of making it harder for people to get their hands on weapons that can shoot a large number of rounds at, at uh, a short amount of time. So that's generally the doctrinal framework. I think uh, there are certainly places to dispute all along the lines of the reasoning, uh, but that has been the reasoning that has won the day, and the Supreme Court has chosen not to step in and correct it. Fascinating. I want one more beat, if you will, and then turn to Ilya. You said if you were on the Supreme Court, you might vote against these bans. What would your constitutional analysis as an original matter be to strike down the bans? Um, well, it might very well be, you know, I'm not, they're not appointing me. You know, uh, someone asked me if I would vote for Donald Trump. I said, maybe only because he'd be the only one crazy enough to appoint me to the United States Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> you would be so, great. Uh, it doesn't, you know, my views aren't going to matter that much. But look, these are weapons that are uh, in common use. Uh, I think I agree with Ilya that there is very little public policy benefit that is furthered by these bans. Uh, I think we should focus our gun laws on things that can make a difference, like universal background checks, um, and not focus on uh, outlawing a particular type of weapon that when you know more and more about the weapon, you find that it's probably not that much more dangerous than a bunch of weapons that are still allowed to be sold. Great. Well, we'll turn to those more practical proposals in a sec. But Ilya, if you were on the Supreme Court as an original matter, how do you think the Second Amendment should be construed uh, to uphold assault weapons bans? Well, I, I tried to generate some controversy for you, Jeff, but I find myself agreeing with essentially all that uh, Adam just said. Uh, although uh, I think uh, I, I don't give the lower courts as much credit as Adam does. I think they're being willfully disobedient. They don't like Heller in many ways, and they're 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 taking the position that until they're only going to go as far as the Supreme Court explicitly tells them to go, uh, and certainly no further. Uh, and so I would I would absolutely uh, vote the same way that Adam would on the Supreme Court. Uh, but I would vote that way in terms of uh, government impositions on any uh, constitutional right. That is, uh, I would hold the government, state or federal, feet to the fire uh, whenever it tries to restrict liberty of, of any kind, and that certainly includes uh, the right to keep and bear arms. And this, is, this gets more controversial, really, with all of the restrictions on the right to carry in various states. There was a Ninth Circuit case out of California decided uh, uh, two weeks ago that effectively said that you cannot carry at all. Uh, and so your Second Amendment rights uh, differ depending on what part of the country you live in. We, we, we don't tolerate that for the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment, uh, and yet we have uh, uh, this particular uh, right that is treated differently. And I think the lower courts are being disobedient, and the Supreme Court, for that matter, uh, has, has been derelict in not taking up one of the cleanly presented uh, Second Amendment cases to explore exactly what the scope is, what levels of scrutiny to apply, and resolve some of the circuit splits. Well, I, this is worth one more beat before we do no buy. A Adam, our listeners want to know, I want to know, what kind of regulations you think are unconstitutional in addition to possibly assault weapons bans if you were on the court as an original matter? There's a bunch of stuff in front of the lower courts from concealed carry bans, as Ilya said, to um, uh, felon uh, bans. Uh, what is constitutionally permissible and what isn't based on what's on the table? 
Well, uh, I, I think in some sense that remains to be seen. I mean, if you're asking what my personal uh, view is, like I say, I, I'm not a justice. I don't get to vote on these things. What we've generally tended to see over the course of American history uh, is that courts have generally said at the state level, uh, at least where the right to bear arms provisions have been subject to hundreds of cases uh, analyzing uh, constitutional protections for the right to bear arms, the courts have generally said that the government has the authority to regulate uh, firearms ownership, but cannot prohibit it. They cannot destroy the right, but can do uh, most forms of regulation short of destroying that right. Um, I don't know if that's exactly where I would draw the line, but it seems to be where the state courts drew the line under state right to bear provisions, uh, right to bear arms provisions. And I think we're seeing something similar arise at the federal level, where so long as the law doesn't completely prohibit someone from exercising their constitutional right to have a firearm for self-defense, the courts have generally uh, upheld the laws and sided with the government. Um, Ilya, is that where you would draw the line, or would you draw it in a different place? Um, well, it, the devil's in the details. Um, uh, you, Adam's right that uh, some kinds of regulations uh, are okay, are constitutionally okay, just like we have time, place, and manner restrictions on, uh, uh, on speech and, and you know, no rights are, are absolute. But what you have going on in states like Maryland and New Jersey and New York and California is that even if they don't say you cannot have a gun, uh, you cannot carry a gun ever, there are regimes of what's called uh, may issue. That is, if you apply, the government, the, the sheriff uh, or the relevant authority may issue it at their full discretion. Uh, and uh, effectively, in those states, unlike other states that are also may issue, but they treat that differently, uh, you're not going to get that. Uh, that uh, you're not going to be able to exercise your right unless you're a celebrity or a rich person or a retired law enforcement officer. The the sheriff simply will not uh, agree, and you don't have. Uh, s simply saying that I live in a in a high crime area, high crime area, and I want uh, uh, a firearm for for self defense. That's not uh, that's not enough. And so in those states, effectively, um, uh, the, that right to carry to protect yourself, whether it's a woman in her purse, whether it's someone carrying it in their vehicle or just uh, on their person, um, that is effectively shut down. And by the way, I think the Constitution is silent as to open versus concealed. So I'd, I wouldn't get involved there as long as a state allows for carrying of some kind. And Adam has written very interestingly in, in his book, uh, Gunfight, uh, on how um, uh, uh, in the old Wild West or what have you, historically, uh, uh, concealed carry was thought to be only uh, scoundrels and criminals would do that. Real men, uh, gentlemen, uh, carried openly. Now we might think differently because uh, you know, we might be, uh, the mores are different or, or, or what have you. But regardless, uh, I think you can't effectively shut down a right by giving so much discretion to the executive branch that enforces the regulations uh, that uh, a so-called regulation is effectively a prohibition. Great. Well, now let us turn to the most prominent proposal that has emerged since the Orlando shooting, and that is the no-buy list. And Adam, if any uh, citizen can take credit for having put this on the national agenda, I would give it to you because in June, uh, in the June 13th New York Times, you wrote a piece called Time for a No-Buy List on Guns that proved so provocative that versions of the No-Buy List have been endorsed by both parties, although uh, the detail is different. Uh, can you tell us what your proposal is and uh, how the two main proposals that are on the table from the Democrats and the Republicans jump off of it. Sure. I mean, I should say uh, that I appreciate your kind words about my op-ed, but... <clears throat> 
this was a proposal that has been around for a while, and I'm sure I cannot take uh, any credit for it whatsoever. Uh, but I will say that uh, it's, it harkens back to what Ilya said a few minutes ago. The devil is in the details. I don't think that there's any real controversy over whether a no-buy list for guns to keep suspected terrorists from purchasing guns would be constitutionally permissible. Uh, gun control advocates promote this. Um, the courts have generally upheld most forms of gun control, uh, and even the NRA has come out and endorsed the principle that we shouldn't that we should have some kind of no buy list that keeps uh, suspected terrorists from purchasing gun uh, from purchasing guns. The question is really, uh, like I say, about the details. And the details really matter for reasons of procedural due process. Under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, the government shall not deny any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that requires, generally, the opportunity for some kind of meaningful hearing. The court has said repeatedly that due process is a flexible standard, and it depends on the context. As the court said in one case, um, that, quote, due process, unlike some legal rules, is not a technical conception with a fixed content unrelated to time, place, and circumstances. So the courts will generally take context into account, and due process is flexible. Uh, under that flexible approach to due process, um, I think that uh, many of the no-buy list proposals that we've seen uh, may be constitutional. Before we get too much into the details, I'll just give you a little bit of background on each one. There's uh, the two main proposals. One is by uh, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, and that one says that the Attorney General shall get to decide, based on reasonable suspicion, uh, that someone is a suspected terrorist and prohibit them from purchasing uh, a firearm. Uh, if that person is denied, um, then uh, the uh, Attorney General has to review that determination, and the person challenges it, then the Attorney General would uh, have to review that determination in some way. Uh, the Feinstein bill does not provide details about how that review process would occur, but it seems to be a review process that's concentrated within the Attorney General's hands within the executive branch. The Cornyn bill is the other major proposal on the table. And that also creates a no-buy list, um, somewhat different in how it works. Um, what Cornyn's bill would provide was that if someone on a suspected terror watch list tried to purchase a gun, there would be a delay. Uh, a delay for 72 hours uh, on the transfer of the firearm. And during that 72 hours, the Attorney General would have the ability to go to court, file an emergency uh, motion, uh, and uh, uh, have a hearing in which they uh, present that evidence to a court uh, to confirm that the person uh, is um, appropriately on the uh, no-buy list. Um, uh, the two sides are very and very different uh, views of these two proposals, and the reason why neither of them will be passed is because the Republicans really support Cornyn's proposal and won't support the Democratic proposal, and the Democrats support their proposal and are not going to support Cornyn's proposal. Um, Ilya, is it necessary for this standoff to exist? The differences are important, but the broad principle is the same. It's, uh, is it really impossible to converge around any no buy list that satisfies both sides. Well, that's kind of a question of, of game theory and and uh, hard politics. Um, if theoretically, I mean, you can the devil is in the details. If we had 100% omniscience and we knew who which people really were dangerous, whether in terms of some sort of international terrorism or whether it's domestic crime or just people that. Uh, 
uh, would commit crimes with their guns if they were allowed to buy guns. If we had 100% omniscience about this, well then, uh, sure, let's have that no-buy list because that would be a perfectly implemented list with nobody, the government having full justification to restrict uh, rights and nobody's... Uh, uh, would be burdened, uh, etc. On the other hand, if we had zero uh, knowledge and zero expertise and uh, people were uh, randomly put onto the list based on uh, a random uh, a draw out of a hat or because uh, their names uh, uh, are, are Muslim sounding or because of other reasons that have no um, kind of thinking behind them, uh, simply just very broad based, that wouldn't work. Uh, and then you have the second level of how does the challenge works? Uh, how does the challenge work? Uh, Adam's uh, op-ed proposes kind of a, uh, a secret court, a FISA court, the same way that we deal with uh, intelligence surveillance requests by the government. Well, how can someone challenge that? They're not even aware that their right is being burdened. And if they find out when they go to buy the gun and, they, and they, uh, there's a red flag and they're not allowed, uh, they're not going to be given the classified information. It's all, the information is often classified uh, that's used to make them uh, a suspect. They might get at best a summary. How do you challenge that? How do you confront your, your adversary? I mean, look, even in the world of sci-fi with Minority Report, remember this popular Tom Cruise movie from, gosh, 15 years ago now, uh, there were still dissenting opinions and even with the highest tech technology. So, um, it's, it's really appealing, and I, uh, I appreciate what Adam is trying to do. Everyone should read his op-ed, but everyone should also read the very careful response by Josh Blackman in National Review uh, a couple of days later, in that this is not like a simple uh, Fourth Amendment, you get a warrant, there's some probable cause, you conduct your little search, uh, and that's it. This is an indefinite, uh, uh, unclear how broad uh, imposition on people's rights. Uh, and look, if the person is indeed uh, a terrorist of some kind or the FBI has them under surveillance and they're plotting, uh, well, perhaps actually going to the gun store to try to effectuate the purpose, the, the, the purchase, that is that last step by which they can arrest them for uh, uh, attempted uh, terrorism or, or what have you, the way that we charge inchoate crimes. Uh, and so, you know, maybe this calls for a, a heightened uh, use of, of better techniques or more resources for law enforcement to investigate people, um, that might be more costly than simply maintaining this flawed list. But uh, when we're talking about civil rights and civil liberties, at the end of the day, um, uh, we, we we put a lot of burden and cost uh, on the government to, so that it to we we minimize the, the violations of people's rights. Great, thanks for that. Um, uh, listeners should indeed, as Ilya suggests, read both Adam's op-ed in the Times and Josh Blackman's response. Uh, the June 16th National Review, a no-buy list for suspected terrorists would be constitutionally reckless. And Josh, another friend of the We the People podcast, uh, notes uh, that uh, Senator Edward Kennedy was infamously added to the selectee list and that the ACLU has challenged the watch list in court, claiming they deprive people of their constitutional rights. Adam, understanding that you think that your proposal is fine, why not why don't you and why don't Democrats just accept the Cornyn proposal as at least a good step in the right direction, albeit with a few more procedural protections? Well, the complaint that's been leveled against the Cornyn proposal, it's that is impractical and not realistic, that what would happen is, is that uh, just all of a sudden, totally out of the blue, the government's going to get a notice that um, 
uh, Adam Winkler, uh, who's on the suspect on the terrorist watch list, has just tried to uh, has just submitted his uh, name for a background check. Is trying to purchase a gun right now, and that would trigger a 72-hour period where the government would have to collect all its evidence that it has on Adam Winkler, uh, maybe across different agencies or whatnot. Make sure the information's update, updated, get it into a court um, within 72 hours, uh, and given the intelli- intelligence issues involved, the class- nature of the classified information involved, but that's probably not a system that's likely uh, to be very effective or to be practical. Um, I agree with Ilya that you need to have some kind of judicial review. What I have proposed is some kind of FISA court. My proposal was that the FISA court would get in on the front end, uh, that it would approve the inclusion of someone on a list, because what due process generally requires is that a court be involved in some way, shape, or form, that you have some kind of meaningful hearing. And so I was trying to get that court uh, to be involved at an early stage so you wouldn't have as many people who are mistakenly put on the list. You could alternatively have a system where the FISA court acts on the basis of classified information quickly uh, after someone has tried to purchase a firearm. Um, uh, that might trigger, again, I think it has some issues with uh, actually becoming a, an impractical system. But no matter what, I think you would have to have some kind of judicial review on the back end where someone would be who is denied access to a firearm would be notified that they are denied because of inclusion on the no-buy list, and that if they choose to challenge that, they can get um, a hearing in a court where they can at least have the opportunity to present some evidence and receive at least some very basic information uh, as to the nature of the charges against them. Those are the standards that we have used already with regards to no-fly lists. Uh, that have, uh, uh, there's been some constitutional questions raised, but generally the courts have said that uh, that sort of system that I've just laid out is constitutionally permissible in the context of no-fly lists, in the context of adding people to um, the list of, people, of organizations that provide material support for terrorism. We have a no-pilot list for people who are flying planes. And generally, these have all been subject to constitutional challenge. Courts have generally upheld broad leeway here for the government, uh, so long as there is some notice and there's some opportunity to present uh, exculpatory uh, evidence by the person who's affected. Great. Uh, Ilya, Adam in his op-ed draws an analogy between uh, the Fourth Amendment uh, surveillance and uh, the right to privacy more generally, and indeed the courts have upheld uh, lots under the Fourth Amendment, assuming that both proposals are constitutional. Um, do you think that the Cornyn proposal would actually work in deterring gun violence in a serious way? Well, I, I mentioned in my previous comment why I think the Fourth Amendment analogy breaks down because this isn't some temporary search, some uh, uh, limited uh, described in the warrant violation, uh, or even uh, a, a surveillance for a certain period of time as a FISA court would would authorize. After all, Omar Mateen, the uh, the shooter in Orlando, was investigated by the FBI, and that investigation was closed, and he subsequently passed background checks, was not even on the terrorism watch list. Uh, and and so forth. So there's you know a lot of tweaks to be made before we even start implementing this uh, this uh, this uh, 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 architecture. But I suppose if you throw enough resources at uh, Cornyn's proposal, uh, it could work to a certain extent. I mean, you could have a dedicated uh, section of the Justice Department's uh, uh, Civil Rights Division or whatever division you want to put this under that would be uh, responsible for this, and you'd have a lot of uh, attorneys uh, thrown at that. Uh, uh, there are compliance attorneys at the Justice Department and other agencies that, that deal with uh, things uh, of a reports of, a, uh, of this sort of nature, the immigration violations. You know, those reports are sent in by states and, and uh, 
and, and federal law enforcement operating uh, uh, locally, sending it back to, to headquarters. So, uh, you know, if, w given unlimited resources, you can accomplish lots of different things. But the, the question is, uh, again, assuming constitutionality, uh, whether, the, whether it's good policy, whether, whether as a matter of cost benefit, that that's you know, what should be done. Adam, this, of course, uh, is a podcast that focuses on constitutional but not policy arguments, but we're talking now about policy, and I'm very eager to hear your views. Do you think that a no-buy list properly implemented would actually work, given the relatively small percentage of gun violence that comes from, uh, you know, people with uh, t terrorist uh, backgrounds who use assault weapons, and uh, what are other proposals that you think would actually work? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think one of the most important things we have to define is what does it count for a gun law to work? What would it mean to say a gun law worked or didn't work? What I often hear is people say to me, oh, if we had this gun law, would that mean we would never have a terrorist act like this again? Um, and of course not. That's not the way to think about it. Um, we have lots of problems with the human condition. Uh, human beings murder, e murder each other, beat each other, rape each other, commit child abuse, etc. Generally, when those things occur, we don't say, well, the reform must eliminate the problem for the reform to be successful. Generally, we say the reform is successful if it lowers the rate uh, and lowers the number of incidents that we're trying to uh, reduce. I think it's the same thing with the gun violence. Uh, you know, uh, a no-buy list, or I think another important thing that we should have is universal background checks to make sure everyone who buys a gun has to go through a background, checks to be, a background check to begin with. I don't know, is that, is that going to prevent all these incidents from ever occurring? Certainly not. Um, no gun law can completely eliminate mass shootings, as we've learned in Norway and as we've learned in Paris, two countries that have very extensive gun control laws and have had horrible mass shootings in the, in the last few years. What we should be trying to do is bring down the daily death toll from gun violence. Uh, it's about... Uh, you know, it's about 30 people a day who are losing their lives to gun violence in some way, shape, or form. If we can lower that number number to 28 or to 27 or to 26, um, uh, that's a, you know, those are people who are going home and seeing their families every single day. And we should think of it as a public health problem where we're trying to bring those numbers down a little bit and not necessarily trying to eliminate the problem entirely, which is profoundly unrealistic. Ilya, what proposals do you think would work? And are Second Amendment defenders uh, concerned about these public health effects and eager to bring down the rates even a little bit? Well, I'm not sure it's a public health problem. It's a public policy problem. Um, it's public health to the extent that mental health is a public health issue, I suppose. And uh, there's a lot of improvements to be made for mental health treatment and diagnosis and and things like that. That's not an area that I'm expert in, but uh, I think there's a lot of room to work there. The other thing is that we have to realize that these kind of headline-grabbing mass shootings uh, are not where most gun violence is. Um, uh, most gun violence is uh, gangs battling over turf or criminals in, in, in other ways engaging with each other or bystanders being hit in a crossfire between uh, between criminals using handguns mostly by the way not uh, not rifles or or shotguns or any other kind of long guns whether you call them assault weapons uh, or not uh, and so uh, you know what are the root causes of crime you know there's a whole that opens up a whole larger uh, discussion about uh, uh, larger social uh, policy uh, socioeconomic trends uh, with with terrorism motivated things you know that implicates foreign policy and uh, and things like that. I think trying to address the, 
the weaponry or the uh, the tools of the matter is trying to uh, deal with the symptoms rather than um, you know, making a dent uh, culturally uh, and overall. Uh, I think the way to reduce gun violence is to to reduce uh, crime altogether. So the strategies that reduce crime, I, I think the number one, my number one pick would be to end the drug war, uh, which I think has eroded, not just caused gun violence, but eroded our Fourth Amendment and other constitutional protections uh, in lots of ways. If you, if you got rid of the drug war, even if you just started with marijuana uh, and then see how things go from there, um, I think that would be a huge step, that and the mental health. Adam, uh uh, take us forward in the gun debate. It really does seem to be so polarized. And yet, uh, when we talk about the constitutional aspects, I'm so struck uh, looking at the interactive constitution by how much you and Professor Lund, uh, like you and Ilya, actually agree about the broad constitutional parameters. Uh, broadly, you think that it is an individual right, but that plenty of reasonable regulations are permissible. And yet, Congress and the state legislature seem unable to pass those reasonable regulations. Can you see any way of breaking that polarized logjam? And can you imagine any effective or reasonable regulations passing in the foreseeable future? Well, uh, I think it might depend, again, on sort of what uh, your focus is. If your focus is on Congress, I think the stalemate that we've seen so far on issues of background checks and on uh, that we'll probably see today with the no-buy list, uh, there are four bills going up on background checks and no-buy list today, um, uh, this uh, uh, Monday. Uh, but, however, the word is that those are not going to pass. Uh, maybe by the time your listeners are hearing this, they will know that or uh, something will have passed then I will be, uh, I'll be proven wrong. But I don't see any uh, major prospects for gun control at the federal level in the short term. If, president, uh, if the next president of the United States is Hillary Clinton, she'll be promoting gun control proposals, uh, barring uh, the Democrats uh, seizing control of the House of Representatives. I don't see any uh, such gun control laws being passed by the House. I do think there might be some gun reform adopted if there's a President Trump. Um, I think that Republicans would push for a national bill creating reciprocity uh, for concealed carry permit holders. So we could get some federal legislation and reform uh, if there's a Republican uh, uh, victory in November. Uh, but I should also point out that while the stalemate exists at Congress, we shouldn't um, necessarily cabin in state legislators with members of Congress. What we've seen since Newtown is very active state-level reform on the gun issue. We've seen significant new gun laws uh, enacted in California and Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut. I think it's about half of Americans live in states that have made their gun laws more restrictive since uh, Newtown. Uh, there's also a bunch of people who live in states where the state the, the law has been made more permissive for people to carry guns in a variety of places, too. So I think there is activity at the, the state level, um, uh, but I don't see any activity uh, uh, at the federal level, uh, especially if there's going to be a President Clinton uh, dealing with a Republican uh, Congress. Great. Ilya, last word on guns. Do you agree or disagree? And you, can you imagine anything passing at the state level? Well, I, I would like to see this become, this among other issues, become more of a state issue. I think federalism is great. I don't see why we need to have uh, one-size-fits-all solutions, whether it's health care or economic regulation or education coming from, uh, coming from Washington when we have a, a big, diverse, pluralistic society. Um, as long as uh, the courts who have fallen down on the job in protecting a, a baseline of Second Amendment rights, if, if they shape up and then 
then there's uh, a lot of room to maneuver. Uh, you know, Mansion Toomey, for example, which was uh, proposed uh, right after Newtown, uh, the instant uh, universal background checks for, for purchases, uh, not from passing from one family member to another and things like that, but for purchases at least, um, uh, all of that would, would have been generally unproblematic constitutionally to question how much it would affect uh, the gun violence and, and other things rather than just making people feel good. But if you couple that with uh, interstate reciprocity for carry licenses, as Adam alluded to, maybe there's some room for compromise. But again, only if the president is someone that uh, the members of Congress can trust. And that's certainly not Barack Obama. It's uh, uh, certainly not uh, Hillary Clinton. We covered what would happen if the Democrats win or if the Republicans win. I mean, I, I don't know what will happen if Trump wins. Uh, so that's a, a big wild card for this on as well as, as other issues. But uh, I do think that there may be action at the states, uh, although I'm not sure how much more there is to do. It seems like uh, red states have uh, uh, respect a, a, a gun rights a fair bit. Blue states don't at all, and, and they've pr pretty much gotten to where uh, they're, they're going to get. So any movement uh, will be, uh, 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 I think, incentivized only if the courts change something, or I suppose... Uh, uh, you know, if Congress uh, has this interstate reciprocity pass, uh, or for that matter, states could engage in a compact uh, that they do for all sorts of different things they, to uh, to uh, to enable travelers to you know not get uh, bollocked up by um, uh, uh, local state regulations as they're as they're passing through. So I I guess my my biggest takeaway is that we're not going to see a lot of movement, just like we're not going to see a lot of movement uh, in the courts, given uh, that the Supreme Court doesn't want to take up uh, anything controversial at the moment, and it hasn't wanted to take up this issue for a, a long, long time. Um, but uh, uh, hopefully, possibly, there's there's room to maneuver on some of these other uh, deeper concerns, whether it be mental health or terrorism or um, uh, the drug war or anything else. And and by the way, we. I th I think we were going to get into immigrants or immigration a, a little bit. Uh, I, one meme that I really liked on social media uh, after the Orlando shooting was that if you find yourself defending gun rights and gays uh, and immigrants and Muslims, then you just might be a libertarian. So I, I find <laughs> myself firmly in that camp, and I defend uh, anybody's rights and, and all of uh, everybody's rights. Great. Well, thank you for introducing the topic of uh, immigration after an extremely thoughtful and illuminating discussion of gun rights. Let us turn to immigration. After the Orlando shooting, Donald Trump said, quote, when I'm elected, I will suspend immigration from areas of the world where there is a proven history of terrorism against the United States, Europe or our allies until we understand how to end these threats. Various scholars have weighed in for and against the constitutionality of this proposed plan. Uh, scholars, including Akhil Amar and uh, Eric Posner, have said that such a ban would be perfectly constitutional under the so-called plenary powers doctrine, where the Supreme Court gives Congress very broad power to keep aliens of all sorts from entering America if Congress uh, endorses the proposal. Uh, by contrast, other scholars, including you, Ilya, have at least weighed in on uh, Donald Trump's previous uh, promise to keep out uh, that would ban all Muslims from entering the United States. Ilya, you said that that was wholly unconstitutional in regard to Muslim Americans living overseas because you simply can't treat people differently on the basis of religion, case closed. Adam, I want to begin with the latest Trump proposals to ban, to spend immigrations from areas of the world where there's a proven history of terrorism against the United States. Would such a ban 
be constitutional or not? I think such a ban probably would be constitutionally permissible, and it's a better idea than the previous Trump proposal, which was to ban people who were of Muslim descent. I think that would raise significant constitutional problems, even though we're talking about an area where the executive branch generally has uh, a, wide, uh, a wide degree of discretion. Just how much discretion the executive has, we may find out soon with an important Supreme Court case dealing with presidential power in the, in, in the immigration field that we're waiting on from, uh, that came out of Texas. Uh, and the deferred action program that uh, President uh, Obama has had uh, that's going to allow uh, a lot of immigrants uh, who are undocumented to nonetheless stay in the country without fear of deportation. So we may see what it comes down to there. It sounds like uh, the current proposal is focusing on uh, actually a relevant distinction between different countries, which is countries that have some history of terrorism or support for terrorism. The question, of course, then becomes which countries uh, that uh, fit that description. Of course, we've had a lot of terrorism coming out of countries like even the United States, um, and there's been terrorists coming out of England. Um, are, are those countries? Obviously, the United States is not going to be listed on a, uh, an immigration ban, but it just highlights sort of the problems that come with focusing on uh, this idea of places where there's a history of terrorism or where terrorists have come from. Uh, but I think the ban likely constitutional. Ilya, you had criticized the previous ban on uh, people of Muslim descent. When it comes to a ban of people from uh, places that have committed terrorism, do you think that that is constitutional or unconstitutional, and why? Well, I, I reserved my harshest words when we had no idea what exactly the, the parameters of the plan uh, would be, and certainly keeping out Muslim Americans uh, is a non-starter. All Muslims, uh, probably also very difficult. The, the, the question, the constitutional questions are, how do you define the criteria for how are you restricting, how are you making the restrictions, and for what reasons? So uh, in the past, we have had various presidents of both parties uh, restricting nationality-based entry. President Carter with Iranians, for example. Uh, I think President Clinton with, uh, with Haitians at a, at, a, at a certain point. I may be mixing that up. But anyway, if it's narrowly drawn for a particular reason that's uh, artfully uh, explained, then there's a lot of executive discretion there, uh, let alone if Congress were to pass a resolution supporting the president, because the way that we interpret executive power is, is the president acting against Congress's will or with it, or has Congress completely silent? Uh, that's a relevant consideration uh, uh, as well. But if it's simply... Uh, uh, these nations uh, uh, produce a lot of terrorists. We really need extra screening, and until we do the screening, uh, people from those countries are not going to get a visa. Uh, I think that's uh, that certainly can be done. But again, it, it depends how it's all written up. And if Donald Trump uh, says, yeah, we're just stopping all these countries because I don't like people from there, uh, that's not going to hold up uh, while uh, a, a different kind of... Uh, uh, more artfully, legally constructed uh, justification uh, would pass muster. Interesting. Uh, Adam, uh, would pre a President Trump need congressional support to validate his plan? Uh, Gila Mar says yes. Peter Spiro of Temple Law School says no, because the Immigration and Nationality Act gives the president the authority to suspend the entry of any class of aliens on his finding that their entry would be detrimental to the interest of the United States. And more broadly, how do we reconcile these cases, which date back to the 1889 decision in the Chinese exclusion case where the, Chi the court upheld the exclusion of Chinese laborers based on nationality. That case has never been overturned, but there were a bunch of cases in the 1970s that said that any classifications on the basis of national origin are constitutionally suspect. So how does the court reconcile those, those two uh, imperatives? 
Uh, well, it's a very good question. I think that uh, the court would probably reconcile them by uh, trying to distance um, the, the justices from the Chinese exclusion cases. Part of the problem with the case law from that area, that era, uh, the late 18th, sorry, late uh, uh, 19th century uh, and the early 20th century, was it was a period of very heightened racial tensions. A lot of uh, sort of racist jurisprudence comes from that area. That is to say, jurisprudence that's based on racist ideas of identity and uh, of how people approach uh, and think about problems. So uh, I think the court would probably distance itself from some of those decisions. With regards to whether Congress needs to weigh in, I think probably the Congress does not need to weigh in, but that the president would be on firmer constitutional grounds if he had the approval of Congress. You know, executive power issues are still so fundamentally shaped by the analysis in Justice Robert Jackson's opinion in the Youngstown Sheet and Tube case back from the 1950s, uh, or, uh, and uh, where the court held that um, uh, the president's power is at its peak when the president is acting um, to fulfill his Article II authority and is acting with the approval of Congress using its Article I authority, but that where the president acts in absence of uh, federal uh, of congressional approval, or uh, even worse, acts against the intent and desires of Congress, then the president's power is relatively less, uh, and um, these kinds of plans are more likely to be overturned by the courts. Very interesting. Ilya, last word on uh, immigration to you. Would a President Trump need congressional approval, and would a Supreme Court back away from those 19th century Chinese exclusion cases and toward the more modern notion that national origin classifications are constitutionally suspect. Uh, I agree with, with uh, Adam's description of the state of the law. Um, and uh, just to repeat, uh, what a court would look at if it even deigned to get into it, because I, I suspect that uh, uh, most such challenges would be dismissed on political question grounds. The court does not want to get involved in uh, these kind of uh, uh, judgment calls, but again, it's it's what kind of criteria do you use? The more the more specific and the more specifically tied to a particular threat, I think on on closer grounds uh, you are, uh, and how you draw it. Is it is it that they're just going to be more screening? Is it that uh, they're barred uh, indefinitely? Um, it, it again depends on on uh, the type of policy, and I and I should say. Um, uh, this is a, a subject uh, near and dear my heart. Today actually is the two-year anniversary of my uh, naturalizing as a, as a U.S. citizen. And so our immigration system, I've found, whether it's with respect to national security or economics or anything else, uh, is just uh, one of the most dysfunctional parts of the U.S. government, which I uh, think your listeners can imagine is saying something coming from someone at Cato. Um, and uh, this is a little farther afield from the, 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 the Second Amendment debate uh, or preventing gun violence or, or terrorism, perhaps. But uh, I think uh, it would benefit our country a lot to finally have a, uh, an immigration reform that makes sense, uh, both for national security uh, and uh, economic and, and cultural purposes. Uh, well, congratulations, Ilya, on the second anniversary of your naturalization. Those are incredibly moving and meaningful ceremonies. We're having one here at the Constitution Center tomorrow, and it's really a highlight of my time here to be able to participate in these incredibly meaningful civic uh, ceremonies. Uh, why don't we can close? Why don't we end? It's, it's hard to have conventional closing arguments, but we've talked about two important subjects, the Second Amendment and proposals to restrict immigration. Um, Adam, first to you. 
Uh, both proposals have been criticized by opponents as being unconstitutional. In your discussion, both of you have suggested that the constitutionality of the proposals is more complicated than uh, the bumper stickers suggest. Um, if the gun and immigration proposals are to be stopped, do you think they will be stopped primarily by the courts or by legislatures or by some combination of the two? Well, uh, I think that uh, most likely they'll be stopped if they're stopped by the political branches. Uh, I think with regards to the Second Amendment, uh, that's where the real barriers to effective gun control have been found is in the legislative branches. The courts have generally not uh, been a significant hurdle uh, for uh, reasonable gun control laws uh, to be um, uh, upheld. Um, uh, the real problem is for gun control advocates, it's hard to get these laws passed in the first place to give the courts something to review. And we're going to see that, I think, uh, with regards to the no-buy list, unless some kind of compromise can be found in the meantime. Um, and I think probably with immigration as well, uh, the courts might uh, well stay out of it. Although I do think that what happens with uh, President Obama's immigration reform may signal some shifts in the court or may give us some signals about how we might think about immigration problems uh, in the future uh, somewhat differently. Um, so I think that remains to be seen, but I think as a general matter, the real barriers to uh, either effective immigration reform or effective gun control uh, rest in the legislative branches and not with the courts. Thanks so much for that, Ilya. Same question to you. And the last word, if the gun and immigration proposals are to be stopped, are they likely to be stopped by the courts or by the legislatures? No, again, I find myself in, in agreement with, uh, with Adam's uh, realistic analysis that these are uh, political issues. Uh, and um, given that they're so um, hot button uh, and the polarization in our legislatures, I, I just don't think that they're going to get through. Uh, I mean, I suppose President Obama or the next president could try to implement them um, by him or herself. Uh, but then again, it depends what, what you're talking about. We just discussed uh, uh, immigration uh, would, would restrictions. What about other kinds? We're about to have a Supreme Court ruling or not. Maybe it'll be a tie on, the exec on President Obama's executive actions in immigration. On guns, uh, similarly, could the president simply impose uh, background checks in areas that uh, were failed to pass uh, through Manchin-Toomey. Under the, under the logic of uh, the immigration expansion, DAPA and DACA, I mean, I think it's the same sort of argument. But uh, uh, these are all uh, political questions uh, in, in, in many respects. Uh, and a lot will depend on, uh, indeed, who wins the election and who gets to fill more of the courts, uh, uh, I, think, uh, I think, unfortunately. Um, but... Uh, the, the, I, mean, I, I just wish that, that we wouldn't be making policy based on emotion. And it, I, I think a lot of the reaction that we've had, uh, whatever uh, people's political or ideological priors are, uh, they sort of uh, uh, seek confirmation from the news and the analysis after any uh, uh, big event, uh, mass shooting, terrorism involved or, or otherwise, uh, and they kind of dig deeper uh, into their side rather than trying to uh, evaluate and, and break the logjam and actually looking at what would be constitutional or what would work. And so even though I, I disagree with uh, a lot of the specifics of Adam's uh, proposal, I 
uh, commend him for trying to come up with, uh, you know, he says it's nothing new, but I, you know, I think I was looking at the last time a, a no-fly, no-buy list was proposed, and what he proposed in his op-ed is, is different than that. There are some nuance there, so uh, I, think, I think that's great, but uh, ultimately there's just so little social trust of our politicians uh, and of especially of politicians of the opposing uh, party, and so that's why we see uh, the gridlock that we do, and gridlock by itself isn't necessarily bad. I think it's rather a feature more than a bug uh, in our system. Um, but we live in, in interesting times, and ag again, we'll see what this crazy election this fall will bring, and, and uh, who knows what the issues that we'll be talking about a year from now will really be. Thank you so much, uh, Adam Winkler and Ilya Shapiro. Uh, thank you, Ilya, for those gracious final thoughts and for that call for the importance of reason rather than emotion in our civic dialogue. It is promoting that reason discourse that these We the People podcasts exist, and this conversation has been a model of precisely that. Adam, Ilya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I want to repeat the wonderful offer that we have, wonderful in our efforts to engage you in the great work of the National Constitution Center, and that is to say that if you join the NCC at the founders level or above, that's $125, then I will be delighted to send you a signed copy of my new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. And by doing so, you'll support the phenomenal work of the National Constitution Center and be part of this great community of civil dialogue and constitutional education. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash constitution CTR, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash constitution CTR. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, across from Independence Hall, in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out our sibling podcasts at itunes.com forward slash panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we really do rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work and to be part of our great constitutional community, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.